Hi, I'm Rebecca Pete, And I'm Rebecca Cochran. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Woven, Woven, where we strive to be Christians living in the world with intention. And our prayer is that, to paraphrase Mary Zimmer, the Christ who knew Mary and Martha would show us the way of balance. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Hey guys, welcome back. Um, today we're in the middle. I don't know what number because we're recording way before January, but <laughs> we're in the middle of our ser- series that we're calling Hard Stuff. And we're interviewing different people and just getting hearing from them and their stories of how God has redeemed them, um, redeemed things in their suffering. And where um, we've talked to a bunch of women and mm-hmm. heard many different stories. And so today we have on Adriel Booker, and she is coming to us all the way from Sydney, Australia. So we're very excited. She's coming from the future, which is always mind blowing to me. That uh, it's the ten o'clock like, tomorrow morning right now, and it's six o'clock our time. So Wednesday p.m. Both the day before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what time it is here. Oh, what did I say? You said it right. You just oh. said, yeah. You just oh. anyways. It's good. It's fine. <laughs> so welcome, Adriel. Sorry, that was a rabbit trail. <laughs> Hello from the future. Yes, yes, and from the other side and of the world. Just so you know, the future looks really good, so you have nothing to fear. Oh, that's good. That's well, good yeah, you said it's spring there, and we're all freezing. So, well, it's because we're in the other hemisphere. I know. Okay. I'm just saying. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Adriel. Um, why don't you like you could do just like an overview, like just introduction of yourself, and then we can dig into deep, deeper after that. Okay, sounds good. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Rebecca and Rebecca. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so my name's Adrielle, and I'm sorry to disappoint, but I have no Australian accent. I grew up in the States, and I moved here about 18 years ago, so I've been living in Australia for a long time, um, but I'm originally American. I'm now a dual citizen, so I'm also Australian, married to an Australian. Okay. We have three little boys in our home. Um, we call them Americans because they're dual <laughs> citizens as well. So awesome. Your husband's <laughs> not an American special. citizen. Your, your, husband's not an Amer- your, your husband's not an American citizen, right? Yes, he's okay. the only one without dual citizenship. Okay. Okay. So, Got it. yeah, if, if we were ever to move to the States, you know, we'd look at getting him citizenship. But Yeah, no point um, right now. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so I moved here 18 years ago to work with Youth with a Mission. Okay. And thought that was a temporary thing. And um, I've been here ever since. And I'm still working with Youth with a Mission. So that's where I met Ryan, my husband. And we got married about 10 and a half years ago. Um, And our kids are eight, seven, and two. Okay. Um, In between, they're all boys. So it's a very loud house. Even our dog's a boy. (laughs) (laughs) I know that there are loud girls too, but I don't have any and I don't have that experience. I just have a house full of boys and it's, it's, uh, very exciting place to be. (laughs) Um, so yeah, we got married 10 and a half years ago. We have been working with YWAM for about 18 years, both of us as singles and then, you know, as, as a married couple. Uh, we moved to Sydney, Australia about, let's see, coming up on three years ago, and we are ministry planting here. So we're still in the early pioneering days. It sounds really glamorous to be a part of a startup. It is not. It is not. I've been in a church work. plant before. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it's similar to a church plant, similar. Um, and so, yeah, we are still in the early days of that. And we moved from, you know, helping to lead a very large ministry to starting from scratch. So it's a big learning curve for us. And, um, yeah, a huge challenge. But it's it's uh, it's been a wonderful time. We love living here. We're closer to family, closer to Ryan's family. Um, and I'm also, let's see, what else might you want to know? I've had... 
I can't remember. Did I say that we lost three babies between the seven-year-old and the two-year-old? I don't think I said that. No, no. So yeah, we've also experienced three miscarriages. Um, And I'm a writer, so I've been writing for many years. And I released my first book this year, which is about that experience with miscarriage and just how to find God and, and how to find hope in the midst of that experience of loss and grief. So yeah, my work is um, is pretty broad. We work with young people. I do a lot of leadership training, a lot of speaking. Uh, we've got a grassroots women's movement as well, where we work with women and and um, to strengthen maternal health in the developing world. So I've got that going, and then plus uh, the book stuff and. And Congratulations on your first book. Thank you. It must be Thank really you. cool after writing for so long to have that kind of gratification of a book like in your hand. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be a writer. I think I'd always, well, for many, many, many years, I thought I would like to be a writer someday, an author. Um, I already was a writer. I was writing online, but I wanted to be an author. And, you know, honestly, I, it's something that I thought, oh, that'll be my golden years because right now I'm busy like leading a ministry and I'm busy speaking and I'm doing all this stuff and I have little kids and there's no way I could ever write an actual book in the midst of it. Um, and so in my mind, it was always this far off, you know, maybe when I'm in my sixties and seventies looking back on life and with all my wisdom I've acquired and that, then I'll settle down and write some books. So I never really imagined writing, uh, from the trenches, but mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's part of the, just part of the process of following God is he weaves your passions together and uh, challenges you to do hard things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can we talk and a little so, bit about yeah, that? Yeah. And I certainly never imagined that my first book would be on, you know, loss and grief and the theology of suffering and, you know, some of the intense themes that my, my book covers. I, I certainly never saw that coming, so... Yeah. And what I know the name of your book, but will you tell our listeners the name of your book? And then we can go into a little bit about the background from it. Sure. So my book's called Grace Like Scarlet, Grieving with Hope After Miscarriage and Loss. Okay. Mm -hmm. So can we talk a little bit um, about uh, your experiences? Can we kind of dive into that part of your story and talk about it? Yeah. So we had, we got married fairly late. I'm 41 now. So we got married when I was 30. Mm-hmm. And um, because we got married a little bit later, I was 30. My husband was 33, 34. Um, we just wanted to start having kids right away. Yeah. Because, you know, the clock was ticking and all of that. And more <laughs> just the desire clock was ticking probably more than even the biological clock. Um, so we, after about a year, we got pregnant and, um, we wanted we wanted one year just by ourselves, but then we were like, okay, let's go for it. We want a bunch of kids. Let's have them all close together. So we had our first little boy, and then a year and a half later, we had our second little boy. And when he was about a year old, we thought, okay, let's try for number three. And uh, we we were so lucky, so blessed. We got pregnant straight away. Everything seemed to be going great. Um, and I was about 12 and a half weeks along. We had seen the baby's heartbeat, you know, everything was fine. My third pregnancy. And one day I, I just started to feel less pregnant Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a really strange feeling. You know, I, I was changing trimesters from first to second trimester. And so 
I logically, I thought, well, it's the change of trimesters, you know, it makes sense that I'm feeling less tired and less hormonal and, you know, some of these symptoms you get, you know, and so I was sort of dismissing it mm-hmm. for a few days and this feeling just kept continuing to grow. And I finally said to my husband one day, I said, yeah, because I, I just feel, I don't feel pregnant and I don't even like saying that out loud, but I just, I feel so different and I just need to see that baby's heartbeat again. Mm-hmm. And it, I kind of felt a sense of relief telling him, but I also felt like, why, why is this, you know, and it is in my mind, I'm going, is this just the change of trimesters, you know, cause I was 12, 12 and a half weeks, something like that. Um, but I just felt like something was off. And then the next day I had the tiniest little spot of blood mm-hmm. and you know, there is, it, it's not uncommon to have a little bit of swelling when you're pregnant, but because of the way I had been feeling for a few days, I immediately thought, oh God, what is happening? You know, and um, I called the midwife and, you know, told her that I'm spotting the tiniest bit and she said, it's probably fine. Just keep an eye, you know, gave me some instructions and I was out with my two little toddlers at the time and I got home and um, I just couldn't shake this feeling mm-hmm. of doom I suppose is maybe a good word for it or dread I just felt mm-hmm. this very heavy sense of dread and decided I couldn't just wait and see I needed I needed to get into the doctor mm-hmm. so you know figured it all out got someone to watch the kids got Ryan home we went to the doctor asked for an ultrasound and sure enough the baby's heart had stopped uh, beating. There was no heartbeat and the baby had actually stopped growing about three weeks before. So that's what's what they call a missed miscarriage. So the baby stops growing, your body doesn't realize that. And so it continues on thinking it's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that made sense because my hormones had been slowly declining Uh and it had only been a few days that, you know, I was like, I just don't feel that pregnant anymore. So that was our, our first miscarriage. And, um, you know, anyone that experiences something like that, it doesn't matter if you already have kids or you don't have kids. It's how far along you are. I mean, the grief will hit you in, in yeah. some way. Um, and so for us, it, it just felt like a semi-truck. It was so yeah. unexpected. You know, you know that miscarriage exists. You know, it's a possibility. We had already had two healthy kids. So for us, it wasn't really on the radar at all yeah. uh, I thought you know I'm a pro like mm-hmm. I'm a pro bring on number three like let's do this I got pregnant easily so it just felt like a semi-truck and and that was the greatest sorrow of our life it really was mm-hmm. we I had we'd experienced some grief before that but this was different and um and so that was our, our first experience with miscarriage and then it took me about a year where I felt emotionally ready to try again I just took it. It was just hard. It was hard on me. And some people cope. I wanted to get pregnant straight away. And some people need time. And you know, there's just no sort of right way. But for me, we waited a year, and um, and then I got pregnant again almost straight away. And um, and you know, I did have some anxiety going into that pregnancy. But I, by that time, I had learned a lot about miscarriage, so I knew the statistics, and I knew it was actually really common. Mm-hmm. 
And so I had really thought of that first miscarriage experience as a one-off, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, well, I know how common this is now. I know that I'm not a freak. Um, and everything will be fine. I'll go back to having babies like I normally do. Yeah. And then I had a second miscarriage. And, um, and that one was as shocking as the first. Yeah. Because I truly thought that was a one-off. And so then with the second one, you know, then I started thinking, like, what happened? Like, did my body break between my first two babies and my Can second two babies? how long you were with the second one? Second one, I was about 10, 11 weeks okay. long. And then, yeah, and so then a year later, I felt ready to try again. And when I say I, of course, it was a joint decision with my husband. But he he would really lean into me for that because emotionally it was a lot. You were steering the ship. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He would absolutely agree. Um, And so, yeah, a year later, I felt ready again. So we tried for number three again. And, um, And that one... I mean, almost straight away when I got pregnant, I was filled with fear, filled with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Went that I, and I just felt like this pregnancy isn't normal. And so we were actually not home at the time. We were uh, doing the seminar on the other side of Australia for six weeks. And so I didn't have a doctor or anything like that. But I was like trying to figure out how to get a doctor to look at me and monitor me. So I was like, I've had two miscarriages. This is not a normal pregnancy. Um, I'm getting older as well, you know, in my late thirties at this point. And I finally got in to see a doctor and I, I mean, I was early like five, six weeks and sort of just demanded, like, I, I must be monitored, you know? And, um, it was probably within the first, I don't know, the first two weeks of being, of knowing I was pregnant that, we found out the baby wasn't measuring the dates that I thought there was no heartbeat yet. And I should have been farther along. So I think technically it was about eight weeks when I miscarried, but um, the baby really hadn't grown beyond maybe five, six weeks because again, it was a missed miscarriage. And so that one I, you know, was much earlier, um, but just as devastating, you know, the weeks along didn't, didn't what they, they weren't the measure of the yeah, grief yeah. Put it yeah. that way. No. Um, and so after that third one I just truly thought like okay my you know I'm I broke like, I don't know what happened but I broke mm-hmm. and um and so then that was a journey even after that third one of going can I even put myself in the position to do this again and we did we did and we, we always wanted to have three or four kids so but there was so much fear after yeah. having three miscarriages. But um, I did get pregnant again, probably a year after that. And, and that pregnancy is a result of our two-year-old, Micah. So, yeah, so we had three miscarriages, sort of one a year between our, you know, our seven-year-old and our two-year-old. So it was it was a loss upon loss. And, um, yeah, yeah the hardest time of our lives. Can we talk a little about the grief you experienced and just – I mean, because you grieved while having two small children and mm-hmm. how, like, I feel it because you said it hit you like a Mack truck. People grieve in all kinds of different ways. But can you, I mean, for the woman who's listening and like, I'm sure so many women can relate to, I mean, because I don't think this ever happens at a convenient time, right? Like there's never like a great time to experience loss, but particularly when you have little kids at home and you're just like, how did you cope in that? I mean, what did that look like for you? Yeah, well, I think after each of my miscarriages, the grief 
looked different. I mean, similar characteristics. Grief is universal, so we all have similar characteristics that certain um Certain aspects of grief were amplified after each one. So our first one, really the overwhelming thing I felt was sorrow. It was just this depth of sadness and sorrow. And, of course, I experienced other things, too, like anger and um, confusion and, you know, the whole spectrum of emotions. I really felt a deep sorrow. The second one, I felt overwhelming hot rage. I felt so much rage, you know, like immediately, like, you know, pardon the language, but I just felt like, what the hell is going yeah. on? Like, like I Did just you felt, feel that towards God or? Uh, not necessarily. No, I actually didn't feel it toward God. A lot of people do. That's mm-hmm. very common. I didn't feel it toward God because I think I had wrestled through my faith enough by that time mm-hmm. that I, I really was anchored in the goodness of God. But I felt more this rage toward the broken world around me and that like death exists, you know? And so yeah. I felt angry almost at everything but God. I felt angry at friends and, you know, our support network and why didn't they respond how we needed them to. And I felt angry at uh, the injustice of the world. And I felt angry. I just felt anger. And I kind of, I remember saying to my husband, Ryan, a couple of times, like, I feel so angry and I don't know how to direct my anger. Like I don't have a good target because freaking angry you know like they're great at these I just feel so angry um so yeah it was just and and of course I also felt sorrow and I felt all the other things too but really anger characterized my second miscarriage and then my third one was most characterized by feeling despondent and numb you know I, I remember after that third one being like just thinking I don't have any more words. I'm out of emotion. I just don't even know. I remember wishing, like putting on sad movies so I could cry and just Mm. feel something and wishing I could get angrier or wishing that I would feel overwhelming sadness and thinking that, you know, somehow that would, it sounds so crazy to say it out loud, but I remember feeling like if I could just get really sad, I would feel better. Yeah. Yeah. You process it. um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just feeling like that would honor that little life as well. Um, so what I learned through that time was that, you know, grief comes in different forms. And even in the human heart, in one human heart, it can look very different from instance to instance. And and so, you know, your question was, how did, how did I manage that with children? Well, my children were at different stages for each of those three miscarriages. The first one, you know, I had a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And the one-and-a-half-year-old... You know, didn't have any comprehension of what was going on. Obviously, they pick up on emotion and whatever. The three-year-olds, that sounds so tiny now that I look at my big kids. But I remember at the time that he really understood what was going on. Mm -hmm. We included our kids right from the beginning. They knew we were pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so we just felt it really appropriate to take them on the journey with us. And, you know, part of our parenting philosophy is that uh, we don't want to delegate – we don't want to delegate to other people teaching our kids about the hard things in life. Mm, You know, we want to be the ones discipling them in, Mm. in life and and the best things and hardest things. And we want them by the time we send them off to feel well-equipped and like they've been discipled. So, you know, what, what better time to disciple your kids and the reality of life and the realities of heaven and the reality of grief and how that affects them than in your own home. So, 
obviously there's different ways that you can relate to children depending on how old they are and their level of comprehension. But we, we always included them right from the beginning. So I, I think there were definitely times where I felt that I didn't know how to give myself full space to grieve because I, I couldn't just shut down. I had to care for my children, but um, in some ways, I, I think that helps keep me grounded. That I can yeah. be a person who's grieving, but I can still live not life. Consumed by it, you know? yeah. Not be completely defined by it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And but in saying that, you know, there were times where I cried in front of my kids. Yeah, and I remember very distinctly a few times where, you know, Levi, who was three, with my first miscarriage, and he would see me crying or, or, or not even see me crying, but he would just pick up that I'm yeah. sad. And he would say, mommy, are you sad? And I say, yes, I'm sad. I'd say, well, are you, are you sad about the baby that the baby didn't come home? I'd say, yeah, I am. And he would go, well, I'm sad too. And he'd curl up in my lap and have a cuddle. And, you know, I think from an early age, that's part of even allowing your children to extend empathy to you and mm-hmm. practice their own empathy and to recognize that Christ is within them just as Christ is within us and that our children can even minister to us and giving them the opportunity to do that, you know, validating their feelings, but also validating that they can be ministers mm-hmm. of light and ministers of hope too. So I think that's, that's all sort of part of it. But then on a really practical level, there were times where I just needed help with my kids. You know, yeah. I just needed something to take them so that I could have some space and some soul time and Mm. um and so that's really necessary too yeah Yeah. were there any um because you know grief can kind of make you feel ungrounded were there any like practical things aside from scripture that helped you to kind of be grounded in that time whether it was like a particular like song or movie or or particular scripture or anything like that that you kind of clung to yeah, for me, the most important thing was journaling and writing, you know, and, and actually researchers will tell you that it's it's one of the best ways to cope with grief. And whether you consider yourself a writer or not, they really encourage people in grief to write, you know, yeah. and to journal and, and, and do that in a way that's uncensored, you know, yeah, safe. Yeah. Um, and so, and for me as a writer, I, I did a lot of writing just for myself personally, and I did a lot of writing and sharing through my blog as well. So it's mm-hmm. personal and public writing. And that really grounded me. It, I felt like that helped keep me tethered to my own self, my own emotions, what was going on, but also to the outside world and, and letting people into that pain and um, so that they could see that I was hurting and so that they could be the support they wanted to be. You know, I think sometimes we we desperately want support and we desperately want help, but we're not vulnerable enough to allow people to see that we need it. Yeah. You know, we just hope that they'll offer it. And mm-hmm. often they, they don't, unless they've been in a similar situation or something, they may not think think to offer it or know how or feel equipped and you know grief is so clumsy it's so clumsy for the person grieving and for the people that want to support them so I think um if if we can be open with where we're at that helps people to know how to enter in but so for me writing absolutely was the biggest thing um learning just another level of open communication with my husband was really really important and um you know, there was definitely a couple songs that I would put on and just like cry and cry and listen to those songs. And, um, you know, I, I devoured books. I was reading books like crazy, trying to find, trying to find, um, 
you know, people to identify with and even validate my pain. Mm, so yeah. I really, this book, Race Like Scarlet, is is the book that I wanted to read, particularly after my first miscarriage. It's the book that I never found. And so yeah. I wanted to write it for other people. So when you were talking about the book and you were describing it, your, you know, your little, the, the elevator part of speech or pitch part of the book, you were talking about the theology of suffering. Um, so how, how, what, how did your theology of suffering transform? You'd been in, you'd been in ministry. I assume you had a theology of suffering and it has transformed as you've lived these experiences. How has that played out? Yeah, I, I think for me, of course, I've been exposed to suffering, and I've worked in a lot of developing nations, and so you see suffering, and sometimes it's you see suffering from the outside looking in, and it's very hard to relate to because you think, well, I don't actually know what it means to not be able to feed my children, you know, or I don't know what it actually means to uh, live under an oppressive government or not be able to practice my religion freely or, you know, some of these things that we tend to associate suffering with, which are, you know, huge forms of suffering. But I had never experienced a personal form of suffering. And so I think you can have all of the knowledge and all of the understanding, even scriptural understanding of suffering, but until you're actually living it, I think when you're living suffering for yourself, it exposes, you know, your theology and what you actually believe about suffering. And and so for me, I realized that although I, I did have somehow some theology of suffering, it was, it wasn't practice. Like it wasn't walking it out. It was, it was, intellectual knowledge you know and it it was belief so don't get me wrong but but it wasn't lived belief and Mm -hmm. so and that really does change and deepen things so and I think as as you know American Christians Australian Christians generally in the west we we have a pretty limited view of what suffering is Mm -hmm. and even in personal suffering if you're talking about the loss of a marriage or a job or you know illness or a death in the family and some of those things we we are exposed to that, but we don't talk about it a lot in the church, you know, and um, we tend to whisper those conversations a little bit. So, you know, even you look at our the songs we sing on a Sunday morning and they're, they're not usually about suffering and how to persevere in suffering and how to find hope in darkness, you know. We sing about it a little bit more at Christmas, which is a beautiful thing, but the rest of the year we, we focus a lot more on the joy of the Lord, and which is great you know but it's it's only part of the christian experience and faith and so i think for me um walking into the season of darkness that was beyond my control really forced me to find god in the midst of that and learn what it means that god moves into our pain and moves into our suffering and stays with us there so how how has that also transformed your ministry? Because obviously, you, as you explained, you were with YWAM and you've been in full-time ministry your entire adult life, it sounds like. So how has 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 what happened to you and your husband with the um, miscarriage, is, has that effect, like, did that transform your ministry too? Is what you're doing now a result of that or just a, a part of it? Does that make, does my question make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think... Any person who's experienced a degree of grief would say that grief does change everything. Yeah. I mean, it, 
it's it, it what's the degree that you let grief change things you know really might be the question because it does change everything and, and what we found is that you know grief can undo you but it can also remake you yeah. and so in the remaking what what will that be and you have a choice in that um i know just on a a general level that we are much more in tune with the suffering around us than we ever were before. Mm-hmm. We're much quicker to move in empathy. We're much quicker to offer practical help, mm-hmm. you know, just really practical help when we see people suffering. Um, I think it's, it engaged our hearts in a way that was really good and really necessary. Um, and then I think on a macro level, you, you start, you do start to ask the question, you know, what is our role in alleviating suffering in the world? And, and when we can't alleviate suffering, what is our role in being incarnational and living in the midst of it with people? Mm-hmm. How do we do that? Um, and so absolutely it's affected things. And then it's, it's also um, opened up parts of our ministry, which didn't exist before, you know, I mean, writing this book is is a very clear example that ministry did not exist before. And so now I spent a lot of time just answering emails and hearing people's stories and, you know, ministering in that capacity. Um, And so that never existed before. So that's totally new. Um, And yeah, so there's many aspects that are brand new, but I think, but I think before that you really, just have to go, how do I let it remake me on a personal level in my real life with the real people we come in contact to with every day, whether they're quote, quote, in ministry context or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, if you let grief transform you in a, you know, in, in a Christ led way, then of course it's going to affect the way you relate to other people. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Cause there's such dignity restored in, being able to have the choice of letting it transform you positively. Cause I feel like grief can just feel like it strips you of just all of that. And it, it is such a beautiful dignified thing to be able to say, like, I get to, I get to engage this in a way that will ultimately bring fruit and healing. So that is so beautiful. Um, you had mentioned, well, yeah. Rebecca, that, I, could I just say like, yeah. I think that's actually the gospel. Like when you distill it right down, the, the, the whole incarnation of Jesus was that he came and he moved into our mess, mm-hmm. the mess of humanity and his presence came and then he brought new life and redemption. And so, you know, I don't believe that God causes our miscarriages. I don't believe that he's ever the author of death. Like he's the author of life. That's very clear. John 10, 10, you know, the enemy's job description, God's job description. But then what he does is he uses, like he move into anything, you know, even a place of death, like even the tomb. And he, from that place, brings resurrection and new life. And that is the whole thing. Like maybe it becomes cliche and we get tired of, of hearing it, but that is what beauty for ashes means that yeah. he actually creates new life out of what was dead. And that's, that's a miracle. You know, it really is a miracle. And so I think that that's, it's so important that we don't gloss over that when talking about yeah. letting grief transform us is that he can actually remake anything, mm-hmm. even the, the most difficult heartache. And I, I like to talk about it as, um, like maybe this is a simple metaphor, but it, it helps me understand. 
And I, I like to talk about grief as like um, a pill that you swallow. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean swallowing something as in like ignoring it or like gulping it down so it doesn't exist. But like like you would take medication or a vitamin. You ingest that thing so that it then can become part of you and do its work mm-hmm. in you to yeah. help you yeah. uh, be healthy. And I think with grief, like instead of just um, swallowing it to get rid of it, we want to swallow it, like like embrace it. With, with Christ. You want to absorb like, it. Like, yeah. yeah, so that we can absorb it and let it become a part of us, not so that it defines us, but so that it can, from the inside, you know, transform us into being more in the image of Christ. And I think that is something that is a miracle yeah. that we we get access to because we have Christ within us. Yeah. Well, and that is we have We have also the knowledge that He has walked the path of suffering before us. So yeah. when we enter into that suffering, it's like we we get to walk alongside him. So while, like you were saying, God, God isn't the author of death and he's not the one who caused the miscarriages. Um, he also, you know, tells us that we'll, we enter into suffering with Christ because of Christ's suffering. And so to be able to feel that solidarity with him, I, I know for me has always been super, a super helpful picture. Yes. Amen. Yep. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I guess with the fact that we have most of our listeners, not all of them, but most of our listeners are women, and a big chunk of them are 30s and 40s, um, I would imagine that um, there are at least a handful, if not more, that have either recently experienced a miscarriage or have at some point, or they're dealing with infertility. So if like you had like, a message for those listeners, what would it be? Hmm. Um, I guess, you know, gosh, well, <laughs> I would say read my book because there's so much I want to tell you and I can't do it. In yes. And we'll definitely, <laughs> we'll definitely put that in the show notes so they can get that easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but what I would say is that, you know, whatever kind of loss you've experienced, whether it's the ongoing loss of infertility you know, which is a, it's, that's a difficult loss because it's intangible and it's mm-hmm. cyclical um, or whether it is a little bit more of a concrete loss, like a, losing a baby or, or losing a, a job or losing, you know, some, something else beautiful and valuable in your life. I think the, the really the first thing I want to say is that your pain is valid and it's okay to grieve. And, you know, we can sometimes think as Christians that we've got to pull it all together quickly uh, so that we don't mar the reputation of Jesus. And I think, wow, that's so, it's actually really arrogant uh, when we think that way. And it doesn't feel arrogant at the time because we're wanting to, you know, we're wanting to pull it together and be strong. But I think the, the humility before the Lord and before other people is to say that I'm in pain. Yeah. And yet, I see that God can, can stay with me. So I would say to that woman, um, don't be afraid of your pain and, you know, enter into it as hard as it is, but enter into it. But as well, invite Jesus to be there with you. He will. He'll draw near. Um, you don't have to fix the pain before you come to him. Yeah. And, and sometimes the knee jerk is, I need to get it together. I need to feel like I've got strong faith and everything in a, in a row before I come to him. And yet he's going, no, this is exactly why I'm here so that I can be with you in this moment. And so I would say, look for the goodness of God. And I know how 
oh, confronting. That can sound to say, look for the goodness of God when you're in pain. But when you're looking for the goodness of God, even in a time of pain, you will find it. If your eyes are searching for it, you will find it. Uh, you'll find pockets and moments of God's goodness, even in the midst of that. And and so I'd say, be kind to yourself, be gentle, mm-hmm. and um, open yourself up to the kindness of God as well. And throw it all at him. He can handle your humanity. He can handle your anger. If you're angry at him, he can handle your confusion, your doubt, you know, the holes in your theology that are exposed, all of it. He can handle it. He is yeah. not intimidated. He is not threatened by your humanity. In fact, I think your humanity our humanity is a thing that keeps us tethered to him because it exposes our great need for him. Mm-hmm. And so don't be intimidated or afraid of your humanity being exposed, but actually you can see that as a gift yeah. um, to, to show your great need for him, which yeah. is beautiful thing. Yeah. That's wonderful. So can I go? Yeah, go okay. for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you've kind of like, talked around the importance of community and being open about your suffering, not like hiding it, not just from God, but from the people around you in your day-to-day life. Like, um, were there any really practical things aside from watching your kids that people could do for you in those moments that were actually like helpful? Cause I know a lot of us try to be a shoulder to cram, but maybe we don't understand or we just, you know, there's a million ways we do it wrong. What were some ways people helped you and did it right? Yeah, I I mean, there's there's no formula, there's no right thing to do. But what I would say is, if you, when you're thinking about someone who's just had a miscarriage, maybe it might help you to think of it in this in these terms. She's just experienced birth and the death of a loved one all in one experience, mm-hmm. and so. Um, her her body is doing crazy things. She's um, dealing with all the emotions that come with that. She is exhausted. She is, you know. And so you you would bring her flowers. You would drop off the casserole. You would pick up an extra bag of groceries at the store. You would, you know, you might buy her a massage. Like something to take care of her body. Something to take care of her soul. Something to take care of her fridge or her floors. You know, all that same stuff applies. Um, and what would you do for someone that's just lost a loved one? You know, you might drop off a bottle of wine or you might um, bring over her favorite Starbucks or, you know, you might you might say, you know, how are you doing? Can I take you out to a movie or can I bring a movie to you and, and watch it with you? And um, I, I think all of those practical things can be really, really helpful. And, you know, one of the things that, especially for someone that's grieving, it can be very hard to make decisions. And so often people will say, let me know how I can help. I really want to help. And their sentiment is so genuine, you know, but for the person that's grieving, they're going, I know I need help, but I don't even know how to ask. Like, I don't even know how to delineate it because I'm so overwhelmed and grief makes you really tired as well. And so when you're exhausted, it can be hard to make decisions. So I would say offer concrete help. You know, you might say, um, for a close friend, don't do this for someone who, who would be embarrassed by it, but for a close friend, you might say, I have got my cleaning groove this week. It's my cleaning groove is on. I really want to come over and just scrub your floors. 
Mm-hmm. If you'll let me, would Tuesday be better or would Thursday be better? You know, make it concrete and then yeah. she can go, okay, actually Tuesday would be great. You know, but if that same person just said like, I want to help clean your house. Let me know what I can do. She might be like, uh, I don't know. You know, so mm-hmm. I think it, the more concrete the offer, the better. Yeah. Um, I mean, someone brought me a plate of cookies. Like I'll never forget that. I love cookies. <laughs> And someone just brought me a plate of chocolate chip cookies. And that's one of the first things that I always think of, like the Ministry of Chocolate Chip Cookies, you know? (laughs) Whatever it is that your friend loves anyway, like those little things will be a blessing. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, so, you know, I'm not in baby making world anymore, but, you know, have been, I have an almost nine-year-old and almost six-year-old. So that's a little bit ago, but not that long ago. But when I was in the middle of having babies, um, I also had friends who were having babies and also friends that were having miscarriages. And um, I didn't experience any miscarriages in my pregnancies. And so it was, what was hard for me um, as a woman on the other side was knowing how to be a good friend while I was also pregnant. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, I, oh, I feel yeah. like women have that experience as well. So could you speak into that a little bit? Like, was, that a, a great question. was that a struggle for you when you would see other pregnant women? And how how do you keep that friendship? And, and like, I wanted to be there for my friends, but I also felt um, ashamed almost or guilty that I was pregnant and they weren't. Does that make sense? And I oh, just yeah. didn't really know what to do with that. Yeah, it's such a hard dynamic. And I think the friend who is pregnant is in a really difficult spot because every pregnancy deserves joy. Yeah. I mean, it's such a gift. It deserves joy. And yet it can feel so sensitive. I know for me, there were different points um, in my grief process where I had to not unfriend, but I had to unfollow people on social media that were due at the same time or whatever. It just... It, it wasn't that I wasn't happy for them, but I just couldn't, yeah. like, I couldn't yeah. separate my loss from their, uh, their life. Yeah. And so I had to just get, be gracious with myself to sort of unfollow until I felt like I could handle that. I think what, um, but that's not on the pregnant friend. That's on the woman grieving. And as hard as it is, like, she has to take ownership for what she can and can't handle at the time. And and that can be really tricky. There's no straightforward, like, do this, don't do this. You know, you've got to navigate that one with the Lord and, and with your friends. I I think, um, you know, I remember being invited to baby shower for my sister-in-law. Um, and I was actually pregnant at the time. Um, but I had already had a couple of miscarriages. And so, but I was still like, I didn't want to go to a baby shower. Yeah. And even though I was pregnant, like I just, I still, it was still so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But for me, you know, I had to weigh up, like, is the cost of missing this baby shower and what that might communicate to my sister-in-law worth my comfort? Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I decided I need to go to this baby shower. But I set a few things up for myself to make it easier. You know, I, I kind of gave myself an early out if I needed it. I had a friend there, like one person that I knew and that had also experienced miscarriage. So I just kind of attached myself to her and I said, I'm really uncomfortable here, but you know, um, so I think you, you have to decide like, it's always going to be uncomfortable, but you decide what's, what's worth it. And, you know, you never want to sacrifice relationships, um, but at the same time, you need to be gentle with yourself. And, yeah. and I think for, you know, in your situation, like being the friend that's pregnant, you can just do small things. You don't need to hide your pregnancy. You don't need to apologize for it. You don't need to avoid your friend. But 
particularly if, like, uh, I always would say if you've got a friend who's miscarried and you just found out you're pregnant, you know, let her know you're pregnant privately before you announce it on social media. Mm-hmm. And she'll just appreciate that you're actually yeah. thinking of her mm-hmm. and knowing that this is painful for her. Like, but give her the opportunity to be joyous for you. You know, she wants to. She wants to be joyous for you. And she wants to be able to do that and still be in her own pain. Like, mm-hmm. we have to be able to hold joy and pain together. Um, they're, they feel at odds with one another. But the reality is, in life, you hold both. And so I think you need, you need to give her the opportunity to be joyous for you, but be sensitive, you know, or maybe you're having a baby shower or you're hosting a baby shower and you know, you're inviting someone that's had miscarriages. Well, invite them privately and, Mm -hmm. and say, you know, I would love to have you there because your friendship means so much to me. And I know that you want to celebrate our baby, but if it's too much for you, I totally understand if you can't come, I won't be offended. I won't take it personally. Yes. So I think those little things can be so meaningful to the woman who's grieving. She might have not wanted to come to the baby shower, but because you acknowledged it, she goes, you know what? I can do this. Yes. That might be even a bold thing for her to be able to, to do it. So I think just acknowledging it privately um, and not springing it on her or not avoiding her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that can feel really hurtful when someone avoids you because they don't want to hurt you. And even if you're like, I know they're trying to not hurt me, but it actually just makes me feel more isolated. Yeah. I'm grieving yeah. very isolated. Yeah. So, or you just feel like too. a weirdo. Like everyone's afraid to talk to you and you're just like, oh, you know, and then yeah, it's like your job like to make people feel better. And it's like this, I'm, yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that's a really good word that would have been really helpful about five or six years ago. But, um, but <laughs> yeah. hopefully it's helpful to somebody else who might be experiencing this currently or might experience it in the future. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Can we talk about your um, mama and what, what, love a mama collective? Yeah, can we talk about that? Sure, sure. So, okay, the brief story with the love a mama collective is uh, when I was pregnant with my second. So my first was one. I was pregnant with my second. Um, so still a very new mom. My husband was in Papua New Guinea on our medical ship. And I was at home, Mother's Day was approaching, and I was feeling really sorry for myself. Like, who is going to give me the day off and spoil me and bring me flowers and wash my floors? And um, just kind of having this pity party. And I felt God gently, ever so gently, but directly um, remind me that the women that my husband was on the medical ship serving, the women in that region, they were dying one in seven in childbirth. And I just, I knew that statistic because this is our work, but somehow when in that moment, it just really sunk in. And I had this revelation of thinking of seven of my friends and thinking of what, if one of us didn't make it through childbirth and how that is literally never a thought that crosses our minds. You know, we think about like our birth plan and, you know, we think yeah. about the nursery and we think about all these things, but we never think about, are we going to survive birth? Mm-hmm. So I was really convicted and I talked to our head nurse and said, is there anything I can do with this maternal health? Um, stuff? And she said, well, we're almost out of clean birth kits, which are just these really simple kits um, for women in in remote, remote areas that don't have clinics and don't have healthcare, they have village birth attendants, traditional birth attendants who know what they're doing. These women know what they're doing, but they don't have the sanitary conditions. Yeah. And so often, you know, the often the real problem is just the sanitation. Mm-hmm. So the birth kits are things like plastic gloves, a plastic sheet, um, a clean blade to cut the cord, soap, things like that. They fit in a little 
sandwich, Ziploc bag. So she said, we're out of birth kits. Would you like to make some? And I thought, well, you know, I'm a blogger. I'm a storyteller. So I wrote a story on my blog and kind of just put a call out there and said, would anyone like to make these with me? My goal is to raise 300 by the of the week it was insane it just went like small viral and um and then yeah it was amazing and so what i realized was how much women connected with other women especially around the topic of birth because we just even even women who have never given birth there's just something about you know the whole motherhood process that women really connect with and so yeah so i ended up um I felt like actually the Love of Mama Collective almost, um, it, it outran me. It sort of defined itself. And there was such a uh, desire for women, especially to, to um, help in this area. So we ended up uh, doing a yearly, we've done a yearly Mother's Day drive. And it's changed through the years. We still do clean birth kits. I think we've raised 20,000 clean birth kits to date. And we have resource clinics all over many different nations, um, or not just clinics, but rural out, outposts. And, and the whole idea with the birth kits is not that they're just given out like, um, here's a, here's help for you to give birth, but it's actually delivered with maternal health education, uh, by local, you know, village birth attendants. So we train the birth attendants to then train the women and so on. Um, and so, yeah, and we've done other things through the years. We've, uh, we have funded midwifery scholarships for, national women that are being trained up, you know, in the countries we work, we have, um, supplied solar lighting and solar power and, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. So I think that that is just something that's kind of taken on a life of its own, but that's called the Love of Mama Collective. And it's a real joy. And, and we started that before I ever had miscarriages. I've always been a bit of a birthy person in my <laughs> or a doula or anything like that myself, but I have a real passion around birth and maternal health. And I think it's such a incredible rite of passage for women. Um, not that it makes you a woman and, you know, I, I realize that some people will never give birth in that way, but it is something that is really, really special. And I, I want to see women healthy and families, ultimately families healthy mm-hmm. around that. Wow. Well, so that's what that is. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely link to your yeah. website, which I know has all this information on it. And, and okay. also the Amazon link to the book as and well. And pictures of your cute family. I know. They Aww. are beautiful pictures. You're beautiful the... people. I love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Adriel. I think this has been really um, educational for me. Yeah. Neither one of us have experienced, experienced a miscarriage. That. So it was, that was one of the reasons why we wanted to have somebody on. Um, you know, we had Becky on with, um, you know, being a young widow. Neither one of us are young widows. Um, and we, we are having someone on uh, else on who's had childhood trauma and like family trauma in ways that we've not experienced. And so like it, 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 we can talk all day long. We talk a lot on our podcast, just the two of us, but it, it's hard to, um, when we have an experience to reach out to those women that probably have experienced these things. So it's great to have people on who can, who can, um, preach to our listeners in that way. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I think it's, it's a huge privilege and, and I really, I do hope that we will have these conversations, not just when they personally affect us, but yeah. when they don't, so yeah. that we know how to be the body of Christ and we yeah, are not yeah. awkward with people in their grief and we can actually move into it and walk yes. alongside them. So yes. I love that. I love that you guys are <laughs> making space for that, even though you haven't personally experienced it. So thank you so much for the opportunity. You're so welcome. Thank Thanks, you. Adriel.